Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. Originally trained as an economist and now the chief global strategist at Principal Asset Management, Seema Shaw spends her time looking at the intersection of fundamentals, technicals, and valuation. Our conversation first considers the low-growth, low-inflation era that persisted post-GFC but pre-pandemic, and here, Seema distinguishes between strong economic expansion and favorable market conditions. Of course, the opposite has been the case in 2022, as the Fed has been forced to tighten at an exceptional pace and asset prices have suffered amidst strong growth. Noting the importance of watching Central Bank, Seema asserts that you must recognize when they are in the process of making a mistake something that became increasingly apparent as 2021 progressed. We next turn to inflation. Seema stresses the importance of labor market tightness, how it leads to excessive wage growth, and how that imposes challenges on the Fed's mission to reduce inflation. With a view that price pressures will persist and that policy rates will remain higher for longer, Seema and her team are steering clients towards defensive positioning with respect to inflation focusing on commodities and exposure to infrastructure plays like toll roads and airports. We close our conversation by considering China, where Seema asserts that the transmission of policy stimulus has been impaired by COVID-0. While the path to reopening is surely uncertain, global growth could see a strong positive impulse at some point in 2023 if lockdown restrictions are eased. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Alpha Exchange, my conversation with Seema Shaw. My guest today on the Alpha Exchange is Seema Shah. She is the Chief Global Strategist for Principal Asset Management, a global money management firm. Seema, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me on. It's going to be an interesting conversation. Looking forward to it. So many market cross currents and you and your team have your hands full just in terms of trying to steer the ship in clearly an environment where Risk cross currents are moving fast. Inflation's moving fast. It's hard to know if the Fed's done too much or not enough. So there'll be plenty for us to dive into here. As we get our conversation started, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background. I did see that you spent some time at the Bank of England, so I know we're going to circle back to that just given what's happened in the last month. But just tell us a little bit more about yourself and just about the start of your career in in finance. I'm originally an economist. I trained as an economist through university, undergrad, postgrad, and pure econ. As you said, I did a short stint at the Bank of England, a short stint at the government in their macro and fiscal policy division. And then after a couple of years there, I was always interested in capital markets, so a little bit of the confluence between economics and markets. After, I think it must be about six or seven years working as a pure economist, I decided to venture towards asset management as a global rate strategist originally really focusing on fixed income and sovereign bonds, and then broadened out to asset allocation to kind of multi-asset and still relying on that background of economics. So that is always my approach. I start off with economics and then from there delve through the various layers of the market. As you talk about being a rate strategist and being in Europe, I'm certainly going to have a bunch of questions just on this journey we've had in sovereign bond markets, specifically those in Europe, and touching down to shockingly low negative rates, even for long-dated bonds at different points in time. So we can talk a little bit more about that. 
But just tell us a little bit more about principal asset management, just in terms of the firm's orientation, its client base, its product suite. I'd love to just learn a little bit more about your firm. Principal Asset Management, we are a global asset manager. We have offices in about 40 different countries, so fairly sizable, covering all asset classes. We have pretty strong offerings in real estate, in the debt market, emerging markets. So if you name it, we pretty much cover. We have a couple of managers who are bottom-up, a number who are top-down, fundamentals. So we have that really broad reach across markets. We have a really strong offering, actually, in emerging markets in Latin America, and in Asia as well. So that, I think, has been amazing in this environment of getting that global feel, but actually, it's a really overdone phrase, but getting that local knowledge from the various markets. So I think that has really enriched the process for our firm. And our clients are really across the base. You're looking at retail, we're looking at institutional pension funds. Again, a very, very broad base for principal asset management. Well, you sit in London, and of course, we've had this recent significant bout of volatility where yields on the long-dated gilts rose in shocking fashion so quickly that the BOE in some ways had no choice but to step in. But you can go back as early as maybe three or four years before that. And in other parts of Europe, you had just as shocking low rates. And I'm thinking about the German 10-year, I believe its low was close to negative 80 basis points on a 10-year level. That's nominal. And so Europe had experienced this just incredibly strong period of disinflation. And that deposit rate set by the ECB at negative 50 felt like it was just going to stay there for ad infinitum. I'm curious if you can just look back on that period. It seems like so long ago, just given the shift in prices now and the shift in inflation. But tell us a little bit more about the experience of sitting in the seat that you do sit in and experiencing the low rates or the negative rates that Europe has experienced for that period of time? I sit in London. I cover global markets, but actually I have a strong understanding of Europe just having grown up here. Now, clearly Europe has had a very, very tough couple of decades. I won't just say a few years, but a couple of decades, which had fed through into this very difficult disinflation process, but really a period of extremely weak growth. And what was interesting is, as you go to investors around the world, you tell someone that you're from Europe, and if you're invested, they typically look at you with pity, because this is a region which has been a perennial disappointment. Every time the start of the year, when investors think, okay, this could be Europe's year, somehow it just never delivers. And I think a lot of this was a structural force that had been built up over years of kind of very, very low productivity. And then, of course, all the big changes with the European Union, the monetary Union as well. So I think these were a lot of structural forces that were coming together to create this period of disinflation, resulting in incredibly low interest rates. And the concern was, of course, that with such low interest rates, it's very difficult to get out of that period. So we know, of course, easily took rates into negative territory. And yet it wasn't having the impact that, of course, central bankers were really hoping for. And along with that, we have the Japanization theme that comes through of can we ever exit this? negative, very, very low policy rate, where actually just capital returns are extremely low. And you add into that another structural force, which relative to the US continues to be a bit of a drawback for investing in Europe. It's just a lack of technology. So where is the one sector that is going to drive returns for the market? It just doesn't exist in Europe. Now, fast forward to today, as you said, 
the moves that we've had in the last year have been tremendous. And if you take your minds back to the end of 2021, I think very few people out there would have envisaged that you would have had such a significant drive up in yields. But unfortunately, the structural forces that were weighing on Europe a few years ago for a couple of decades haven't yet lifted. So as we think about the next couple of years out, I think Europe could still be weighed down by this very, very low growth environment. Maybe some improvements with regards to integration in Europe, which should, of course, open borders a little bit, increase growth marginally. But there still seems to be that sense of how will Europe ever emerge from this very low growth disinflationary period, even post-2023. Well, as I reviewed some of the work that you and your team have done, you've made the comment that Europe certainly has substantial headwinds. We all know about the energy crisis, and you're putting that against a policy response that's already difficult, just given some of the structural challenges in growth that you describe. But you also seem to be at least somewhat encouraged by this notion that it's in the price, i.e., that European equities, from a valuation standpoint, might already reflect enough distress or uh, future weakness to provide a cushion, some margin of safety. I want to talk about that. But before we do that, I just love to go a little bit more 30,000 feet because you started as an economist and you've made this shift into portfolio strategy, market strategy. And so, of course, you're leveraging your background in economics, but you're trying as well to, in some ways, always ask, well, is it in the price? And I'm just curious if you could just reflect a little bit on this intersection between studying the economy and understanding economic fundamentals and those types of dynamics of growth and inflation, but then also adding as an overlay this idea of studying market prices and how those prices are impacted by the economy. Can you just tell us a little bit more about framework-wise how you put those two skill sets together? When I first joined asset management, and I originally just came in with that pure economics background, I did at that point, of course, think that fundamentals were all that mattered. Of course, that's certainly not how it works. So over that process of a number of years of being in the industry, you start to realize actually technicals and valuations are as important, if not more important at certain periods of time. So the process that we have is always thinking through the fundamentals, technicals and valuations. We have macroeconomic models which we intersperse with a valuation model. Um, we track a number of different technicals, as well as a lot of historic analysis. I think sometimes it's very easy for investors to overdo this emphasis on what happened historically and how it must repeat itself. But I think it is an important part of the task of analyzing where markets are going to go to understand what happened historically. But of course, we do bring together that valuation side, the fundamentals of the macroeconomy, we're always knowing that at different parts in time, one can be more important than the other. And certainly at points in time, valuations will completely overwhelm and do fundamentals. That is something we're continuously at the back of our head. So it is a bit of a matrix formation as we're going through this portfolio construction, portfolio analysis. As you think about your analysis of US markets, maybe if we contemplate for a moment the post-GFC period, let's push forward past the sovereign crisis in Europe in 2012 and into that almost never-ending period of non-emergency QE. The Fed is kind of stuck at zero. It's still buying bonds. Inflation is really low. Volatility in markets gets lower and lower into 2013, 14, 15. 
those were pretty good years for the S&P amidst pretty slow growth. I was hoping you can reflect back on that a little bit, just in terms of as you think about those indicators and that mix of fundamentals and let's say technicals and valuation. How did that period, just in terms of sizing up the opportunity amidst low growth, how would you guys have looked at opportunities, let's say, in the U.S. equity markets during that period? I think when people are going to look back at that period, they're going to think back as it was the absolute golden period. Nirvana. (laughs) Yeah, you didn't need to do much, essentially, to make a positive return. As you said, it was a low growth environment. There wasn't really anything tremendous going on in the economic backdrop. But simply because central banks were flooding the market with liquidity, pretty much anything, however terrible the fundamentals of the company were, they could actually probably do well because there's so much liquidity rushing around. And then you have the advent of technology really taking off and starting to be part of people's day-to-day lives. And together, that combination proved to be very, very effective. Now, from a US equity market perspective, this was the time of technology. If you had bought into those fang space, when you had bought in in size, goodness, you would have been sitting on some pretty hefty piles at that point. And a lot of that, again, it comes back into what do central banks do? What was the impact on interest rates? And any segment of the market which did well with low interest rates, with falling interest rates, was the place to really fixate yourself. But even if you didn't get that right, and you happen to sit in a different part of the market, chances are that you made positive gains. Really low volatility, low growth, but very positive gains. It's an era which, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to be repeating in the next 10 years, which is why we'll look back with wonder at how easy life was at that point. Yeah, I'm remembering that they used to call the U.S. economy the 222, 2% inflation, almost at least, 2% rates and 2% GDP. And very predictable. I think that's one of the things as we look back on that period of Goldilocks, as you called it, there was something about the predictability, even if it was low growth for asset prices, it was a pretty favorable environment. So, of course, we had the awful shock of COVID, both just for the human toll, and it certainly exacted a significant economic toll, and it wrecked havoc on supply chains and it called central banks to act both on the support the economy side, but then ultimately they probably stuck around for too long. I'd love for you to walk us through your thinking, let's just say in the post-COVID period as the dust is settling and it's clear that there's supply chain damage, but the central bank continues to keep rates extremely low for perhaps too long, but I'd love to get your take on, let's just call it in the early parts of 2021, what was on your mind as the dust had settled from a COVID standpoint, but the central banks were continuing to hold policy in a very accommodative stance? At the end of 2021, as we were looking at the growth basis, the growth outlook, the economic indicators were pointing at extreme recovery. And then to have central banks keeping rates as low as they were, continuing to expand balance sheets was I think a moment of realisation for a number of people, actually, that the last 10 years, although it had been the Goldilocks period, as we said, it had lulled central bankers and analysts invested into this false sense of security. This assumption that history just continues to repeat itself, that the last 10 years would be the way that, you know, fundamental structural shift in the global economy, which meant that we would never really see inflation again. And as you could see, these supply chain bottlenecks, which realistically, you didn't even need to be an investor to see this. 
you just have to be doing your house up and trying to get hold of some kind of hassle furnishing to be aware that there was a major problem going on with regards to not just prices, but just getting hold of something. So even on a day-to-day basis, real life was telling us that there was a problem starting to build up. And central bankers continued insistence that this was transitory. Now, that most hated term, but it was just transitory. We were starting to flush a number of alarm bells. So at the end of 2021, when we started to think about central bank rates moving forward, it was very clear to us. And I think it was dawning on a number of investors that central banks had started to get this very wrong on two factors. One was that Phillips curve is extremely flat, that inflation can really never take off and push the economy hot, hot, hot without any comeuppance. That was number one. But the other concern was actually that central bankers were really starting to look through oil prices. And you can see that at the beginning of 2022, as commodity prices started to take off, you could still see that their narrative was, oh, well, this is the supply shock. We don't deal with supply shocks. And yet you could see that the rise in commodity prices was leaking into every single part of the economy. Wherever you looked, not only were they then dealing with supply chain issues, but then you also have this drive up in commodity prices, which inevitably starts to put up inflation. And once inflation reaches a threshold, everyone is going to be looking at their pay packet saying, wow, this doesn't buy me as much as it used to. And they're going to go to their employer and say, God, times are tough. I'm a little bit worse off than I was last year. Can we do something about this? That is human nature to look at your pay packet and say things are not working out for me anymore. And yet central bankers were still very, very behind the curve. When we think back to the Fed, when it started to hike, inflation in the US at 7.9% was four times higher than where it should have been from a 2% inflation target. So at that point, I think it became very clear to us that central bankers would need to hike very, very aggressively. And that market actually rate expectations were still too low. They're still buying into this transitory narrative far too much. Having come from a central bank background as well, I think the number one lesson I have just from my process coming into asset management is you have to watch central bankers very, very carefully, but also you have to be alert to the mistakes that they're making, because that is where the opportunities start to arise within investors. With that knowledge that central bankers were underplaying inflation, I think a lot of what then transpired with the market this year started to come actually quite clear. Yeah, it's so interesting. In a lot of ways, the most real-time report card on success or failure is what we see every day in asset prices. They blink at us instantaneously and forever. I'm just remembering this is even late 2021. I know there was a little bit of a soft patch there inflation-wise, but the 10-year got to a very low yield. You wonder if the central banks are staring at these market prices, of course, that they influence quite a bit just through their massive QE programs and say, oh, I think it's some sign of safety. I wanted to go back to wages because you've got a chart here, which I really liked. And I'd love for you to just talk a little bit more about how wages figure into your calculus on inflation. But the chart shows a Federal Reserve Bank of New York labor shortage index, which I hadn't seen before. And of course, it's rising, (laughs) as is the employment cost index, as is the jobs hard to find metric from the NFIB. How will wages figure into the evolution of inflation going forward? So that chart, it was almost a bit of a revelation as we were putting it together. These things that you track every day, but had never been that significant. Actually, I'd say that for a number of economic indicators in the last six or seven months, has suddenly become very, very important to the analysis. 
But anything to do with labor market tightness has become, I think, for anyone who's trying to sell their market, it's probably the number one thing to track at the moment. And again, real life, talking to anyone, going into any kind of shop, any service, you can see that there is a lack of labor. And that is the case, not just in the US. It's certainly the case in the United Kingdom, and this is certainly the case in Europe as well. But there is simply a labor shortage. And I have to say, some of it is still a mystery because actually post-COVID, and with inflation so high, you would have expected more people to return to the market. So I think that is still a bit of a mystery. It's something that we still need to unpack and understand. But as long as you have labor shortage, it makes sense. If you look around that there's nobody else doing your job, of course you're going to ask for more money. This chart just makes sense. Employment costs, wage growth start to increase as the labor market continues to tighten. And I know from any economic training that wage growth is the number one concern for central bankers because as soon as you have people asking for higher wages and a company duly delivers, then of course the company needs to in turn raise their prices in whatever fashion it is, which then makes things more expensive. And then you start to have this spiral. Now, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a wage price spiral, but you can see that the mechanics start to turn. So you have that wheel starting to turn as you have a tight labor market. So the concern for us is not necessarily that the wage growth is going to suddenly go sky high. It's that central bankers will find it difficult to contain once it gets going. I think that's where we are today. We will see a bit of wage softness as you get into more difficult economic periods. You've opened up Pandora's box. It's very, very difficult to close it. So for us, wage growth, even more than inflation expectations, is probably the number one factor to watch when you study to think about central bank policy and how the Fed is going to have to respond from here. How do the other components that are widely cited figure into how you look at inflation going forward. So the housing component has been discussed a bunch. This OER metric seems to be lagged and coming down. There's things like used car prices, which just got crazy for a period of time, but those are coming down fast. Is there some balance just on the other side of perhaps the stickiness or the upward trend in wages that you look at on goods and then housing as well? How do you look at other components that you think are going to be impactful? The original thing that drove inflation higher was on the good side, and that was the supply chain bottlenecks and the commodity price increases. So we are expecting that as you get through to next year, we've already seen supply chain issues really resolve themselves. As China also starts to reopen, hopefully through 2023, that will be another positive impact on supply chain issues. So the core goods aspect of inflation should, we think, actually become negative at some point next year. So that is a huge benefit to anyone who's trying to push inflation down. The core services, that's where the real concern lies. Because whereas what we originally had was a supply shock, that supply shock has now transitioned into a demand shock. And that demand is incredibly strong. And as long as demand is very, very strong, then that core services, your shelter services, your medical service inflation, anything to do with economic heat, you have to have deliberate fed attention to it. So as long as that services component is strong, the Fed has still got work to do. This is the reason why when we think about what the Fed has to do, well, for us, the Fed has to engineer a recession. It's the only way for it to bring down inflation. So let's say that the economy continues to run really strong. Consumer spending continues to be resilient as you go into the next year. Yes, that's a positive, but it's also a bit of a negative because it just means that the Fed has got to go that much further in order to contain the economic demand, the economic heat. And therefore, it's a feed through to service inflation and bring inflation down to 2%. So 
So this goes back to the hate analogy, but when good news is actually bad news, and I think that's what we're facing at the moment, any good economic news means that the Fed has just got to go that much further. It is incredible how the good is bad and bad is good, how entrenched that had become for the risk equation. And you mentioned this idea that the Fed really has no choice here with respect to delivering on its inflation mandate other than to cool the excess demand. And a lot of what they refer to there is through this financial conditions channel. That means something different whenever you ask a different person about this. I think every Fed regional bank has its own version of this, but I know your team does as well. And I've seen you referring to financial conditions. So I'd love to get your take on financial conditions and then maybe specifically the index that you guys have put together, the components of it and how they interact with each other. The way that I would think about financial conditions is essentially just the, I guess, the expense of doing anything, whether it's the opportunity cost or the actual kind of physical cost of investing. When we put together our own financial conditions index, this brings together a number of different financial indicators, credit market spreads, equity markets, the dollar, of course, central bank tightening, volatility. And putting that together has actually been a very, very strong guide, not only to what's happening with markets, but also at this stage, what does the Federal Reserve need to do? If I put this a different way, if you take it back about, I guess, any time in the last 10 years, when you had done your inflation forecast, most people would have thought about the economy. They would have done the inflation forecast. And then they would have said, okay, this is what the central bank is going to do. The way that we're having to approach our analysis is saying we know there's an inflation problem. We know what inflation needs to be. We have our inflation forecast. Let's say that we assume that the Fed is going to somehow, whatever it takes, get inflation down towards the 3% level, so somewhere closer to where they are in their 2% to their 2% target. And then we back out and say, okay, what does the Fed need to do in order to get to that point? And that is a slightly different way of forecasting now than it was a couple of years ago. Through that, we also look at the financial conditions index and we say, look at the level it is today. How much further does it need to go in order to bring inflation to your 2 or 3% level? And then you back out your Fed actions. And from there, it tells you what's going to happen to growth. So there is a slight twist in the way that economic forecasting, I think, is going on today than it was a couple of years ago. And financial conditions is right at the heart of that analysis. Yeah, it's really interesting. My own background is more focused on market prices like derivatives, so spending a lot of time on VIX and the move index and so forth. And one of the things that I think has been quite fascinating about the recent period is the degree to which all assets are so correlated or negatively correlated is probably the better way to phrase it to the dollar. You've got these risk assets that are as negatively correlated to the dollar, more so than at any time in the last decade or so. You also mentioned credit spreads as part of your index. And one of the charts I saw in what you guys have published is on banks and lending standards. And I thought that was very interesting. I mean, I think at some point, the price of credit, let's say credit spreads, are a function of a number of things. Some is the forward-looking risk profile, but also the availability of credit. And we have, as we were talking about those good old days of low growth and low inflation, there seemed to be really no problem accessing credit. Banks were plenty willing to extend credit. 
there are some early signs of a tightening of standards. I'd love for you to walk through what you see there and maybe where you see it going and what the implications might be. So look, when we think about credit standards, the reason that we've been tracking them is because as you have credit standards, I guess as banks are raising credit standards, it just suggests that they have increased vigilance by those credit underwriters. And that means that they are concerned about the economic outlook and potentially they have their own indicators, which they're looking at, which is feeding into their fear. So to us, that's a signal of rising risk aversion. And then in equity, that's going to flow through to your credit spread. From our perspective, I could have actually picked out a number of various indicators, which all showed very, very similar movements for credit spreads, in which we have a slowing economic environment. We have central banks, which are tightening policy. They're starting to take away all the liquidity that they've been flooding into the market recently. And together, those two factors to us make it very clear that there's going to be some type of widening in credit spreads. Of course, the level to which is a little bit harder to call. The other part, which I think has been really interesting for the market so far this year, is that because we've gone through these various periods where market has been really, really worried about economic recession, and then actually it becomes, oh, we're not going into recession, it becomes very, very complacent. You can see credit spreads are kind of moving alongside some of those fears. So when fears are greatest about recession, of course, you get this huge blow up and spreads. And then as a bit of that complacency is started to set in, actually credit spreads have been incredibly well behaved. This has led, I think, to a number of investors getting a little bit, again, complacent about next year and saying that actually recession is not inevitable. Look at the credit market. It's been incredibly well behaved. There is a lot of circularity within the credit market. So we can look at it as a bit of a canary in the coal mine, but we can also say, well, look, economic difficulty will lead to credit spread widening. And so this takes you back to, you look at financial metrics, but you also have to really keep a close eye on the fundamentals and try and separate it out a little bit. Because sometimes you can just be talking your own book over and over again until you find exactly what you're looking for. Folks who are long the credit bearing side of fixed income, corporate bonds, high yield bonds, have certainly lost money because of widening credit spreads. As you know, they haven't widened all that much in the context of what we've seen Even in, let's just cross out the GFC and the pandemic in terms of blowout credit spread widening, but take a good recession and you see substantially more credit widening typically than we've seen so far. But the losses this year are not just credit spread widening, but of course, duration, this epic sell-off in the bond market. And I'm wondering if you could just reflect a little bit on this idea of 60-40, how investors may have overused this idea that stocks and bonds are diversifiers of each other, because that's clearly not what's happened this year. What can we take away from this joint sell-off in stock and bond prices in 2022? Well, 2022 has been an atrocious year for that 60-40 portfolio. So I understand why that focus on treasuries has been there this year. It is meant to be the absolute safe haven. If you're worried about recession, that is typically where you have to run to. But I think there's a couple of things that have gone wrong there. One is that, again, the market has been really wrong-footed by the central bank, partly because the central bank have their own complacency, which fed back into the market. But also, the economy has been a lot more resilient than I think anyone had anticipated. And those two factors of economic resilience, plus the market having to continuously reappraise its central bank forecast, is what has led to this tremendous sell-off in treasuries and has resulted in 60-40 just having a terrible year. I think that's going to continue for next year. No, I actually think that duration is probably the place that you want to be in 
because we are expecting economic recession to come to fruition in the second quarter of next year. And despite, of course, the impact of quantitative tightening on the Treasury curve, we do think that that advent of recession and then this kind of assumption that at some point in the future, a lot of it up to debate about when the Fed will have to start cutting rates should really put down a pressure on that long end of the Treasury curve. So I think at that point, some of those safety aspects of a normal portfolio do start to come and play in. This year was a bad one. But I think next year will be a better one for 60, 40 investors. You have to think outside the box, though. We've been saying this for a number of years now, is that that traditional 60, 40 is just not going to earn enough for you. You have to start seeking out a little bit more exotic, kind of more adventurous places to play that 60, 40, and whether it's in emerging market debt, whether it's in private markets, real estate, you almost have to venture a little bit further in your traditional portfolio to get any reasonable gains that you would have become accustomed to in the last 10 years. I want to move to how you guys assess the current opportunity set in the risk asset side of things. You've got a chart here that talks about valuations and very interesting framing where you look at the percentage of time that the asset class is cheaper from a valuation standpoint. So I want to dive into that. But before we do that, I just wanted to ask you about the twos tens curve, because at minus 70 Boy, that's about as inverted as we've seen it. I think it was about tied at the end of 2000, just as the new century began. And then you got to go back to the early 80s, which of course was pretty chaotic from an inflation and rates standpoint. What's the read through for you on the negative 70 bips of twos, tens? And then specifically, is it a metric that you think has impact on how the Fed looks at how things are going? That 210 is actually one of the key factors that we track in our recession models as well. It makes perfect sense. We know that the Fed is going to be hiking or at least keeping rates higher for longer. Whether or not there's one or two cuts in between, we do know that rates will be near the current level, I think, for a while. So that two point, your short end of the curve is going to be elevated. And as we get towards recessions, we're getting closer and closer to it. That downward pressure on the long end is going to keep coming in. People are going to start thinking about rate cuts at some point in the next 10 years, and that's going to put that down with pressure. So that two tens inversion makes sense. Do I think that the Fed listens to it too much? I don't think the Fed watches the two tens that closely, other than what the market interpretation of it is. But I do think that the yield curve, different segments of it, is of incredible importance to them. There's always going to be a lot of caveats to any kind of indicator. You can always point to something. But you also have to respect the signal to some extent and say, look, at this point, not only is the 210 inverted, but pretty much every other segment of the yield curve is now inverted. If this doesn't end up in recession, when you have something which is as deeply inverted and as widely spread inversion as you have today, that would be a shock. So you almost need some incredible positive surprise to come through in order to result in the yield curve not being this successful recessional signal that we are expecting it to be. So what I'm seeing big picture is you feel or what your team sees is that the Fed's job is not done yet, that it's a higher for longer type of circumstance because inflation, while it's certainly going to come down from very high levels, is going to be somewhat sticky and that it's going to be a difficult road for risk assets. And so some of your work points to really moving up in terms of quality of trying to tether portfolio exposures to those types of assets that do better in a higher inflation environment 
walk us through the big picture of the team's asset allocation framework and where you're steering clients these days. I think your analysis of how we've seen the market is absolutely right. We are expecting recession. We are expecting rates to stay high for very long. We're also expecting, just importantly on that point, is that we think that central bankers, in the same way that they made the mistake of looking at the last 10 years and say, wow, that low inflation environment is going to repeat itself, we think that they have had their fingers burnt now. And so they're going to go that extra mile to make sure that inflation gets back to target, stays close to target, before they even consider lifting their foot off the brake. So that really does suggest higher longer and a recession, which is more than just your two-quarter recession. With that in mind, this is really the time, we think, to be a little bit more defensively positioned. This is the time for quality, for stability, and just try to knuckle down a little bit and focus on what's going to give you a stable income stream. So from that perspective, it won't be any surprise to you from what I've been saying, that we are underweight equities. We are expecting a further downward leg. Seasonality, et cetera, technicals could certainly take you a little bit higher than where we are as of now. As you start to get into next year and some of that earnings weakness starts to come through, we are expecting another leg down in the equity market. And then just broadly, from a fixed income perspective, this is, I think, not the time to be overweight credit. As we said, I think credit spreads, as you get into a session, it's going to be under a fairly significant widening pressure. So you want to have exposure in fixed income, but really less so in the credit aspect. So this is a bit of a core fixed income, treasuries, mortgages type of portfolio. And then the one area that we do really like within this broad asset allocation framework is the alternative space, and that's specifically on real assets. So anything which does well in an inflationary environment, because as we said before, with the sticky inflation environment, inflation stays above the level that central banks are comfortable with throughout 2023. So you want something which is basically inflation mitigation in a low growth environment, something which can still continue to give you a stable income stream. And for us, within real assets, we do like commodities as a long-term play on some of the structural shortages facing the commodity universe. But most specifically, to us, this really plays into listed infrastructure. Now, if we look back to, I think, beginning of 2020, listed infrastructure has outperformed global equities and it's outperformed global fixed income as well. It's also had slightly negative returns, but it has definitely not done anywhere near as badly as fixed income and equities have. So this is an area which we think can continue to outperform. It's our largest overweight within the portfolio. We have not lifted it at all. We have not taken it off or reduced it within our portfolio. We think that it's still got much, much further to go. So in this, you can see we're trying to play into the opportunity space, which plays well with this fundamental picture that we have of economic weakness and high inflation. And as you look at this concept of infrastructure, does that get down to the stock by stock level? And if so, what are the equities themselves or just the sectors that would be represented by infrastructure? My team is not stock pickers. We have a number of teams within principal asset management who do very successful stock picking. But from an aggregate level, global listed infrastructure is things like toll roads, motorways, airports. Those are the things which even actually during COVID still have that continuous income stream. So that is a very, very defensive place in a low growth environment. And in fact, the only time that actually listed infrastructure typically underperforms the broad market is when you have a very high growth, low inflation environment, which is, of course, the exact opposite of what we're starting to come into. The other part of this, which is interesting, is it can play into a lot of the global secular themes that we're expecting. So, for example, decarbonisation. 
that should be really a very strong tailwind for utilities and renewable infrastructure companies. So this is part of the space that you have thematics, as well as that basic macro backdrop playing into the SASTA class. We talked a little bit about some of the analysis you guys have done on valuations. And one of the charts that you've put out, I thought was really interesting. It was basically looking at drawdowns, S&P drawdowns, so showing those, but then also overlaying EPS drawdowns. And so certainly, at least at this point in time, the drawdown in the S&P exceeds the drawdown in EPS. And maybe that foretells something coming. Certainly also could be just a proper re-rating of the multiple, which just seemed altogether high relative to the emerging inflation and higher rates backdrop. But talk to us about that. It's just in terms of if I'm an S&P investor looking forward out to 2023, are those estimates, are those money good from your framing? Or do you expect to see reasonably sizable drawdowns on the EPS side? What's been interesting for this is that you've had this fairly significant drawdown in the S&P 500, and that has been despite actually earnings being very resilient. You've had some softness certainly leaking through, but it hasn't been very significant, which tells us that this has been a valuation compression-driven drawdown today, which makes sense if you just take a step back and look at how market expectations for policy rates have moved. So with that big move up in expectations for the Fed and other central banks, that has really driven this valuation compression, which has pushed down the S&P 500. So we look at that as your stage one of the equity market slide. Stage two is when you get into recession and you get that meaningful earnings drawdown. That is when you're earnings downtown. That's when concerns about margin pressures, when you start to think about wage pressures and what the impact on companies is going to be. That's when that starts to play in. So as we look to 2023, we are expecting earnings to come down fairly significantly. And that to us is your second stage of the equity market slide. So 2023 for us, at least in the first half of the year, is not going to be a positive year for equity markets. There's so many data points that folks like you have to keep an eye on. There's real-time data. There's data that's a little bit more lagged. There's hard data. There's survey data. So there's all kinds of indicators. And at least because there's so many of them, anyone can decide to pick their best five or worst five and maybe create a bullish or bearish narrative. I'm wondering if you can share with us some of the indicators that you keep an eye on that maybe are not as commonly cited in the public narrative, things that you're looking at these days that are going to provide you with a stronger sense as to where this whole thing is headed. Are there some undercovered indicators that you and your team like to look at? I'm kind of mentioned two key ones. One is to actually just talk through the Federal Reserve, the various regional central bank websites. We mentioned one earlier, the labor shortages index from the New York Fed. That is just one of many that they, these central banks produce, which I think give us a very clear indication of what the Fed itself is following and tracking. Very, very comprehensive. So I think those are the things which are still a little bit undercover and worth keeping an eye on. The other part to this, though, is surveys. More so than at any other point in my career, I think we're putting a lot of emphasis on what employers, employees are saying, whether it's a corporate survey, whether it's a consumer survey, confidence survey, small businesses survey getting that sense of what's going on on the ground, because that is going to be your first indicator for weakness or certainly for strength coming through in the pipeline. 
stuff which don't necessarily play through in the economic data. And remember, economic models have been hugely disrupted by COVID. With COVID in there, the models are throwing out some pretty bizarre signals a lot of the time. So you almost have to take a step back and say, yes, I want to watch the quantitative data, but I also need to look at the real time and understand what people are thinking. Because at this stage, it's consumer corporate behavior, which is going to drive what happens to earnings next. As I said, I think it's earnings, which is going to be what takes the equity market down that second level. These companies have had to deal with so much in such a short period of time. The supply chain bottlenecks, the speed with which inflation has emerged, the central bank policy response. Some might tie the incredible changes in currency relationships to that policy response. And we all know about the strength of the dollar. One of the risks that you've pointed out is just in terms of China. You've talked a little bit about the credit impulse, that currency relationship, obviously, between RMB and the dollar is significant, has a lot of import for risk asset prices. But share with us some of what you guys are thinking in terms of China, where it's going, what the implications are, let's say, for a U.S. investor. How closely should we be watching developments in China? Oh, goodness. Well, for 2023, I mean, do not take your eye off China. You want to be seeing what's going on there. But for 2022, one of the things that we have seen is China's stimulus was pretty active. Policymakers didn't just sit back on their heels and watch things unfold. They did try, I think, fairly hard to trigger some kind of improvement in the economy. One of the reasons that it hasn't been that effective is actually it's twofold. One is that they probably didn't go as far as they could have or they wanted to because of the concern about the renminbi and potential credit capital outflows. So that unfortunately stopped policymakers from going the full nine yards in what they probably wanted to do. But the other side of it was that whatever set policymakers did, because of continued COVID lockdowns and the sense that there was just a lack of demand and a huge amount of uncertainty within China, you just didn't see people taking advantage of easier stimulus measures. And that has meant that actually growth has not responded to any kind of policy stimulus. So that transmission mechanism, if you will, has been cut by this continued COVID lockdowns and their approach to it. So if we go into 2023, and we're already starting to see this news starting to build up a bit, is about potential reopening. If you do get a reopening, which I have to say, I think is going to take at best a couple of months. They have a long way to go with vaccinations, with preparing people, getting companies ready. And of course, like any country, you probably want to wait till it's slightly warmer weather. As you get towards spring, if they are able to fully reopen their economy, that is going to boost domestic confidence. It's going to boost domestic demand. And then at that point, whatever stimulus measures really come in, they will have very, very significant impact on the Chinese economy. And this is why investors are watching so closely on the COVID measure. It's interesting, actually, because since 2020 Q1 through to earlier this year, every time we did a presentation deck, there was obviously always going to be a chart on vaccination rates, on COVID lockdowns, something along the lines of COVID. And then since the beginning of the year, most of us have taken out any of the COVID-related charts, except for one, and that's just on China, because it really has continued to have a very, very meaningful impact. So as you get past, hopefully, this COVID outbreak, COVID lockdowns in China, that should have a very meaningful impact on the economy and then open the floodgates for new investment. And keep in mind, too, that actually investor sentiment towards China, because it's been disappointed so many times this year, had reached an absolute low. 
And of course, when you have such low sentiment, when you do get that positive catalyst, the move will be so furious and so violent that you want to be very, very ready and alert to any of the kind of shifts that we could hopefully start to see from the Chinese government. It's such an incredible time for investors because I think some of the prime brokerage data would suggest that your average U.S. hedge fund has run very low gross and net exposures. And I think this is how when you get a benign CPI report, as we did for October, you get a 5.4% move because there's such a degree of underinvestment. And so you're presenting this notion that China could actually come out of this quite strong. And yet you look at these global PMIs, they're all headed in the wrong direction. It's a pretty fascinating backdrop here. I'm wondering, Seema, as we round out the conversation, as you look at the narrative that we're all flooded with each day, we watch Bloomberg and so forth, and there's always this goal of tying cause and effect. That's why we like markets, because they seem to make sense. But there's always something that might be a little out of whack. I'm wondering if you sit back and look at the set of prices, set of indicators that you look at, what is incongruous from your perspective? Are there prices either on an absolute or relative basis that just seem to be behind or just away from where you think they should be on a fundamental level? What are the things that you think are head scratchers at this point? Maybe I'll take it in a slightly different direction, which is one of the areas which surprisingly we talk about fundamentals being absolutely horrendous for Europe. You know, we are expecting recession. If it's not already in recession, it's going to be in recession within the next couple of months. But despite all that negativity and concerns about weather, concerns about Russia, European equities, for example, their valuations are, I think, accurately reflecting the risks that Europe faces. This is where you have to start marrying up fundamentals and valuations and saying, yes, it seems like it should be awful and actually European equities should be under a huge amount of downward pressure. But valuations are telling you that this is quite accurate. So for us, this is not the time to be underweight European equities, given how cheap things are. It's also not the time to be overweight equities because of the amount of uncertainty which lies out there in things that we cannot predict. So whether Putin, we cannot predict those two. But it does mean that some of the things that you would expect the market to not yet show, sometimes the market has already seen a lot of the expected price movements have already adjusted to that point. So that has certainly been one of the interesting spots in the market to take a look back and say, wow, my negativity doesn't necessarily mean that there's an opportunity out there. And you had pointed to the weakness in the euro as at least contributing in some positive way towards the profitability of European corporates. Is that correct? Yes. This is one of the things. Traditionally, if you take your mind back just two or three years ago, when people thought about currencies, they always looked at that as an automatic stabilizer. I mean, that's what a floating currency really is. It's there to stabilize your economy, to give you additional stimulus when things are too tight and to maybe pull things back when things are too easy. So although people have been really concerned about the weakness of the euros and even the weakness of sterling, in a way that's been a real positive for their economies when they really need it. So what we've seen, for example, with the euro is the weakness of the euro relative to the dollar has been fantastic for European earnings. So all the fundamentals have been very weak, recession, oil prices, everything almost feels like it's going wrong for Europe. The weakness of the euro has meant that earnings per share growth has continued to surprise to the upside. 
it's very easy to look at currency and be very worried about the weakness of the currency. But remember, that is the automatic stabiliser and it can work to a country's benefit, providing, of course, it's a floating currency. Well, let's finish our conversation with you just reflecting on the recent volatility in the UK gilt market. The pound obviously sold off quite a bit. And the BOE, where you spent some time earlier in your career, was called into emergency action. Share some of your thoughts on that incredibly tumultuous, let's say, two-week period for the central bank. I'll try and keep my emotion out of my comments there, but it was astounding to see the politics unfold. I think what really went wrong, starting from that point, was that although we had this new chance to come in, there was very minimal regard for financial markets and their reaction. Those are markets. We don't need to worry about them. We have to remember, financial markets give us very clear signals on what is sustainable and what isn't sustainable. And by taking their eye off financial markets and climbing forward with a fiscal policy, which is clearly uh, not beneficial to the economic growth areas that they needed to target, but also, of course, very, very unruly when it came to debt. That unraveling, which we saw start to play out in the gold market as investors started to realize what the implications were for inflation and for debt, really did bring the government to its knees. And unfortunately, for the Bank of England, who I think their policy has been, certainly at some times we can criticize it, but overall had tried to play their role of being the ultimate inflation fighter to some extent, were found that they had no choice but to respond in a way that they clearly didn't want to. So their intervention on that Wednesday morning, remember it very clearly, it came as a bit of a surprise to the market. But as we started to understand what was at risk there, I think we were just reminded of the importance of having these independent central banks that can step in and play this role of financial stability at times when they desperately needed to. Unfortunately, when we look now at what unfolded and where we stand today, there has been I think, some sustained damage done to the UK economy through that period. As I said, I mean, the currency is weaker, which of course is a positive in some ways, as I said before, but in others, it does show you that the credibility of the UK economy has been impacted by the fiscal policy and then the monetary policy that had to unfold. And one of the implications now is that central bank rates in the United Kingdom will likely have to go even further than they would have before. So there is a detrimental impact to the UK economy, which will last far longer than the gold crisis and certainly much longer than that six-week government lasted. You point to this feedback by market participants, by the way, of the asset prices that they trade. And I like to say quiet asset prices promote inaction, but when they start moving quickly, it certainly demands response. And certainly we saw that. Well, it's great perspective. Seema, this has been a really wonderful conversation. I've really enjoyed getting your views. We covered a lot of ground here, and I'm sure our guests will appreciate your time and insights. So thanks for being a guest on our podcast. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. You've been listening to The Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, Your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time.